call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 30 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched two films which were screened at the Cannes Film Festival in 1973, Tukibuki and Scarecrow. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out justwatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Please follow Call It Friendo podcast on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes or any or all of the above. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at Call friendopodcast at gmail.com or eat cantaloupe you belly aching rhinoceros Paris, Paris, Paris C'est sur la terre un coin de paradis Paris, Paris, Paris De mes amours c'est lui le favori What have you been watching this week? I've watched a ton of stuff actually in preparation for a long weekend of watching more stuff. So I, as promised, as promised, I blew through Save Me. Okay. Season one and two. Talk to me. Got to the end of that. Yeah, I think it's amazing. I really, really liked it. Apparently, there's a third season, which I'm, uh, I mean, on its way eventually Mm -hmm. at some point. And COVID probably didn't help with that, but. Yeah, I just think Save Me is great. That's another thing that when we, we were talking about soundtracking last week, I think the soundtrack of Save Me is one of the key points. The Dustin O'Halloran piano score is uh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I just I thought it was great. I, I, I would love if you have any recommendations of similar kind of thriller police procedural Wow. I mean, it's interesting you should bring that up. Before we get onto that, yeah, just to talk about, like, yeah, Save Me, um, without going into spoilers for anybody, but... Have you finished season two as well? Yeah, 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 I have, I have. I just think... Man. Like, how he wrongfoots you is amazing. And particularly, like, all of a sudden when he finds Paul, again, without spoiling it for people. Yeah. That's it, that, and then he just, he's missed his chance. It's... An ama- like amazing. I think yeah, a bit of wrong. The thing that's the thing that's genius about season two again, without going into any spoilers, mm. but there are two concurrent storylines of of characters yes. and the way that that's played off. Like that's just fucking because it's yeah okay. Yeah, we can't really talk. We can't talk about. But it. I mean, it's yes, amazing writing, and this is Lenny. James. Brian is so good. This is Lenny James having been. I mean, a, yeah, fairly successful actor for quite. And he had this mm-hmm. like ability to. I mean, th- it's just an amazing story, and I, like, it, and and to be fair, now it's is not one that would be, let's say, unique to the golden age of television. Some people call it peak TV. Like this is the kind of thing. On British TV, they were making this in the 1990s, this kind of stuff. This is like a prime suspect true, around there or, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. I, I believe what happened was um, he, wrote, he, had written a, he wrote a film script years ago that got made, and then he, did, uh, he just um, changed agent, I believed, and this lady had heard about this. She, they, she asked him, have you got any more writing up your sleeve? And he just thought about it for a weekend, and his kicking and off... And came back and said pedos <laughs> well no his kicking off point was he wanted yeah to like have that kind of investigate investigative character but have hit, but dial down how brilliant he is by about 50 percent and just put him in the same situation <laughs> with the same motivation and uh, it, like it works f- fucking brilliantly it's fantastic i will give you another recommendation because in the last week 
I watched what I think is like the best, maybe the best thing I've seen on telly this year. Uh, 2014's by Sally Wainwright, I believe. Happy Valley is... I have heard of this. I just never got around to watching it. It's absolutely terrific. It's really, really brilliant. And what makes it like so good, I mean... Okay, there's two very good central performances in there by Sarah Lancashire as the the lead police officer and James Norton, um, who was the lead in Mech Mafia, who's a really hissable villain in it. But um, there's two things. First of all, I mean, the story is what it is. A girl gets kidnapped, people look for her. Um, like, many people have done this. It's like basically about the dark underbelly of a small town is like could be david lynch could be a jack reacher book it's been done Royston and Vasey. but in, indeed but it kind of uses that as a sort of a, a prism to sort of explore well it could either be like trauma or grief or resentment and bitterness and actually there's a very good boyston Roy, uh, uh, valley uh, Bo- what's the name of the town boyston what are you talking about league Royston of Vasey. Yeah, league of gentlemen right yeah, because Steve, Pem- yeah. Steve Pemberton is in Happy Valley. Oh, nice. As a truly pathetic character. The sort of pathetic character only Steve Pemberton no, can he's play. He plays a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, very, like, he is the English William H. Macy, I, I think. Um, Excellent. But, uh, yeah. And and then, again, for the just the wrong footing, like things that should happen in episode, I don't know, six normally will happen. You know, they just bang out at you. It'll really surprise you. So I really, really strongly recommend that. I enjoyed that a lot. What else have you been watching? Well, I started, well, actually, I watched the entire thing just over the last couple of days. I watched the Showtime documentary series about the los angeles comedy store ah yes you told uh, me this is very good former stand-up comic mike binder who is a film director in his own right who made the film rain over me with adam sandler and don Cheadle. i don't know if you ever saw that film i never saw that i wasn't a massive fan of it it was okay it was one of those films where adam sandler his wife and child i want to say die in 9-11 yeah and he sits around all day playing ps2 sounds good and then, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's like living the dream. I don't know why. I don't know why he's depressed. I mean, he's, he's winning. He's winning at life. I hope the I, anyway, I, I hope uh, the I, I hope the end of that film is just him sitting back down at his PS2 with a new with a newfound yeah. will to play. <laughs> That's it. Uh, yeah. So the documentary series is a five part series. If anything, the only negative about it is that about halfway through, it starts to focus on the modern day and. For comedy nerds like myself and yourself, I'd already heard like a lot of those stories. So I was kind of like, yeah, okay. I don't really care about that. Yeah. What I liked was all the old stuff. The first episodes about like Letterman, Leno, Michael Keaton, Richard Pryor. And there's wow. just, there's a lot of great stories and, and just, yeah, obviously like clips from back in the day. And it was funny how much like some of the, like some, some of the, um, bits like some of the stand-ups bits from the 1970s were still pretty funny because i mean comedy generally does not age well but i was shocked at how like i had some some people got a laugh out to me from 40 years ago i just think that's testament to yeah somebody who's operate like for example i i listen to rodney dangerfield today you'll you'll laugh your ass off within a minute you know it's it's just depends on the type of comedy really. I would be surprised about yeah, yeah. particularly the brand that uh, seemed to have flowed out of the comedy store in L.A. Uh, you you told me that this is 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 really good. Yeah, it's, it's, I heartily I heartily recommend it. It's I'll, a five part season series. It's uh, it's solid. 
Yeah, I'll get around to it because I did, I watched that um, the Patrice O'Neill documentary and it's fine, mm. like, but I'm I've just heard literally everything in it. Before. Yeah, I heard all before mm. this one. There was stuff that I'd never ever heard, and it was just to see it. Just I mean, I I went to the comedy store a, a couple of years ago. It would have been, and yeah. to, just to see it again, like to to kind of get the sort of visual sense of everything and you know where everything was happening. Yeah, it was nice. It was interesting. Apart from that, the other thing that I I rewatched Baby Driver. Oh, I think it's brilliant. only the second time I've seen it. I saw it in the cinema whenever it came out a few years ago, and this was my first time rewatching it. I want to like it more than I actually like it. Huh. I just, I just, it feels. I think it's got problems in scripting, characters. The soundtrack's obviously amazing. It, the, the editing is great, classic Edgar Wright editing style. But yeah. I just don't. I don't care about the characters. I don't like um, what's his name, Elgort. Ansel Ansel El- Ansel, El- Ansel, Elgort. Ansel Elgort. Not a fan. Not a fan of him. Yeah. But yeah. I just. I just. The. It just feels like a bit of a mess overall. Watching it. I, I, I just don't feel like it holds up. The sort of films that were a big influence on that, the likes of um, The Driver or um, mm. uh, what's the name, Vanishing Point or um, Bullet. Oh even. yeah, well I mean, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, those are films I really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I me too. Me watch. too. I like. I feel like I don't know. There's there are points in it, like particularly anything to do with John Hamm in that movie. I'm all over. I think he's great in it. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I agree. Uh, I think Spacey is weird. Yeah, and not just for you know. Uh, yeah, he's 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 an odd um, addition to it. It's yeah. There are things like particularly like when John Hamm is on a rampage. Uh, you can and and the foot chase also. You get the feeling of this, mm, this, some of that stuff is very good. This is a feeling I could be more about. This is a, a film I could be mm. more about than I was. I'm with you though. Um, but I mean, I do think it's like it. It's certainly not boring. And um, no, 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 yeah, no. It, it flies by. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree to there. I got a big time recommendation for you. It's a new film. It came out this year. It's called I Care a Lot. Written and directed by Jay Blakeson, who did um, the Disappearance of Alice Creed a few years ago, uh, starring mm. Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage. Rosamund Pike plays Marla, who takes advantage of elderly people um, to become their ward of the state, let's say, and then drain their resources. And then Dinklage plays just a very bad man. The ne- the less you know, the better, but this is... What's th- the film called? It's called I Care A Lot. Uh, to fly through, so I watched a couple of classics that I was supposed to have probably seen years ago. One was Night of the Living Dead. One was The Red Shoes. I put off Night of the Living Dead for years because I always had a fuzzy copy, but then I found a one. 1080p blu-ray in my local blockbuster yeah wow um that actually that has aged really well apart from there's some zombies that can use tools in it which you know i mean but for the most part the zombie genre seems to have come out fully formed which is that we don't have much money we've got this concept let's go with it and it works like it like i had a lot of fun watching night of the living dead anybody who's ever heard martin scorsese rabbit on about cinema has definitely heard him mention the red shoes so i was up in the middle of the night with my baby a little bit bored just finished happy valley and i said sure i'll fire on this i had kind of prepped myself beforehand uh, by putting it in the camp of something like amadeus or topsy turvy um, and think because i put off watching those for so long because they just looked so much not my thing but i really really loved them and the red shoes is almost that but at the end of the day it's a 1946 movie about ballet so i mean how much 
mm. more, how much more is it going to get me? But it, what, me it, what it really, really goes for is the psychological angle, and you can see why it's got its place in, in, in cinema history. But then I watched Iron Man 2. That is much better than I remember it being. I really enjoyed it. I, I never had a problem with Iron Man 2. I like a bit of Justin Hammer. Oh, Sam Rockwell. You don't character. even know the character names. Sam, How I, dare you? I just knew him yeah. as as Hammer, but then I got confused because uh, the film is, of course, written by Justin. What well, did you think his name was? Army Hammer. Did you know that? that I think Justin... that's why he called himself Justin Hammer. Did you know that uh, Justin Theroux wrote that? I didn't, but he's a great. I mean, what he wrote Tropic Thunder, a bunch of yeah, other yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad. Uh, it's yeah. just it's and just... obviously he's the the hottest. Yeah, he is police a hot officer. But I mean, ever th- in that... the leftovers. That was uh, one of his like first jobs as a writer, which is huge. Theroux's are all writers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, now I'm sure. Yeah, as we discussed, Justin Theroux is now going to be starring in the miniseries adaptation of Paul Theroux's book, The Mosquito Coast. Oh yeah, yeah Mosquito Coast. Mm. Yeah, I hope they get Louis in as well. But uh, yeah, man, Iron Man Two is way better than I remember it. It's like out of any of the Marvel films, it reminds me of like reading like a six part marvel serial mm. do you know what i mean like it's just it, i think people just had a problem with that i also thought that thor 2 was nowhere near as bad as people were making it well you see i'm gonna get around to i'm gonna get around to are thor you 2. you're watching the whole thing right yeah. from the start you've gone you've started from the start i'd like to do that but mm. i mean how many films is it 22 i'm not sure Feels like a big commitment i've seen a lot of them multiple times already so well you see my only issue is I want to watch Ant-Man and the Wasp. I've never seen it, but how am I going to do that without <laughs> getting the other films fresh in my head? You know? Wait, have you never seen... Wait, so you haven't seen all of them already? I haven't seen Ant-Man and the Wasp. Do you know what they, this really like sparked off me as well? Actually, one thing that does deserve mention is I love it when there's an actor on set who is clearly just having just ridiculous fun and in this movie it's mickey rourke like mickey rourke yeah is mickey ju- rourke is uh he's just being what's his character called he's being silly a uh, ivan rango russian whip man <laughs> yeah, yeah, russian yeah, great. but he's just he's just being silly like he's just being so so silly and he's got like a haircut like a i don't know what pregnant teenager or something is funny. Uh, he's quite, and he's violent as well. He snaps a guard's neck in it, and Happy Hogan bites a guy's ear in a fight. So Iron Man Two, I think it's fair to say, is would be at the opposite end of the entertainment spectrum to the film that I made us watch this week. Oh, you didn't like Tookie Bookie? I didn't say I didn't like it, but no, I didn't like it. <laughs> Tookie Bookie is a 1973 Senegalese drama film directed by Jibril Diop Mambetti, I think. The title means the journey of the hyena in the local language Wolof. The film, which had a budget of only $30,000, was screened at Cannes in 1973. And much like some of the other films we've watched, was lost for a number of years before eventually being rescued. In fact, the film starts with a title card stating that the World Cinema Foundation, an organization created by Martin Scorsese, was responsible for its preservation. I have a couple of questions for you. First, how did you come across this film? Okay, there's a restaurant near my house in Barcelona called Tocateca, whose uh, name I could never remember, and I used to call it Tuki Boogie as a goof. Part one. Part two, I was scrolling on the Criterion website, uh, the Criterion Collection website, and I saw this had just come out, Tuki Boogie. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Then the Criterion Collection website allows people to do their top tens and so forth. And I saw your man Tunde Watts' face from TV on the radio 
put this on his top 10 and he described it as a real sort of a punk rocker of a movie and i always had a curiosity um about it since then because i don't know like for example i i remember a few years ago ian kershaw the uh, radio dj i'm vaguely aware of him he i haven't listened to radio in a million years he was a big champion of world music and I saw I heard him on Desert Island Disc and I just thought um pe- people being into world music was just the height of pretentiousness but then it was really convincing and I listened to a bunch of uh, African music Malian music and South African music and stuff and I really really enjoyed it and that all those elements came together and I said oh maybe I'll give this African movie a go that was it um apparently Jay-Z and Beyonce used an image from the film The Bike with the Cow Skull in order to promote a 2018 world tour leading to accusations of cultural appropriation. Really? Mhm. It's controversial. I'm going to I no comment on that. Mm, me yeah, me neither. No comment. I like uh, I think I said when we watched Otravai, I know nothing about Africa. <laughs> And this is like, this could be the first African film made by an African that I've ever watched, possibly. I just know nothing about Africa. It's actually quite uh, sad. So, but after watching this, I'll definitely, there's a couple of films I already highlighted that I would like to watch. But how did you react to this film? How did you feel about it overall? First of all, you're landed on another fucking planet, seemingly. And that is quite intense and gripping for a time. Then I'm so kind of fixed into more sort of traditional narrative structures, let's say, that there are two points in particular where things happen that just... Did that, did that happen or did that not happen? Just tell me. I don't understand what's happening. So that kind of threw me a little bit. I think I found it interesting, but I would never watch it again. It also has possibly the most horrific sequence I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, I mean, I assume you're talking about some of the slaughterhouse scenes. Yeah, I'm talking you? about the abattoir scene. Um, yeah, well, we, we'll, 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 we can discuss that a little bit. I, I thought the film was excellent, personally. I th- certainly thought it was superior to Scarecrow. And despite the budget limitations, I think the film creates an impressive sense of scale around Dakar and shows off a wide array of striking imagery, starting and ending with those abattoir scenes that you referenced. Are you joking? No, I, I really liked the film. I thought it was good. Oh, really? I, okay. I, yeah, I thought it was better than Scarecrow, definitely. I definitely much preferred it. Well, yeah, we'll come to it on a scene-by-scene basis. I'm going to be asking you some questions throughout so that we can, so that we can try to maybe figure out what the fuck was going on in a couple of places. Cool. A brief synopsis of the film is that a young couple, Mori and Anta, are intent on escaping poverty in Senegal and making a new life for themselves in Paris. Mori, played by Magai Nyang, I want to say, is a charismatic biker who rides around with a cow skull on the front of his motorbike. He's constantly engaging in scams and gambling, racking up debts around the neighborhood. His girlfriend, Anta, played by Marem Nyang, no relation, is a female student who goes along with Mori's plans. The film starts with cows being herded into a slaughterhouse before the workers slit their throats and bleed them dry. I have a question for you. Are you specifically seeking out animal snuff films? Is this your thing? Oh, Wake and Fright also. Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fuck it. That's my thing. Let's watch animals being massacred. I have been to slaughterhouses. And this is, I suppose this is just an African 1970s slaughterhouse. 
I mean, it is. This is some rough going. Yeah, it's not great. I have never been to a slaughterhouse, and on the ba- on the back of this, I don't think I want to. No, but do you want them to continue eating meat? I don't eat meat. Actually, I haven't eaten meat for um, about as long as I've been in Italy, <clears throat> more or less. So I haven't eaten meat for about six months, I think. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I eat fish. That doesn't count. Fuck fish. But I don't eat proper animals. Any re- any faces. reasoning behind that? Yeah, I'm just too lazy to cook it. Oh, okay. Fair enough. No, I just I don't want to. I don't want to eat meat. I'm not. A, I I don't care about it. Uh, okay, I did not know that about you. We see Murray riding around on his cow skull bike. He's a cool young guy in the Rebel Without a Cause mold. We see Anta and her mother selling fruit. They live in an impoverished area of the city, and you can see why Murray and Anta want to get out of Senegal. One day, Murray goes to pick up Anta from what I assume is her university? Is she a university student? Uh, they both are. Yeah, so they're they're both university students then. I it just seems to me that Maury's just around. I thought he's like a a, a cow herder. Um, I got the impression that he was a student. He doesn't. I I don't think he is a man of letters. Okay, fair enough. We see Anta talking to her mother, like her mum is selling fruit, and then she takes off. She's sitting doing homework or reading a book. Yeah, you see, I thought that was Maury. Poor neighborhood. But Maury, Maury, we see just before that driving around. I had to go back and look to to confirm this. We see Maury just driving around on his cowhead bike, and all the little kids are kind of cheering him. Yeah, I remember that because he's badass on his cow bike. But yeah, so Anta is a university. I'm, I, my only question was, is it a university? I had no concept of how old anyone is. Maury pulls up on his bike outside the university and a bunch of guys start shit with him they pull him up tie him to their truck and drive him away later anta's looking for him and asks her aunt where he is and she says that he's thrown himself off a cliff so anta runs down to the cliff where she finds maury on her she says he jumped off a cliff and laughs insanely for about two minutes yes yeah she's not a, a very nice person yeah, this reminded and we see me her of, later on being the, of the uh, cutscene in Don't Look Now with the two old bags laughing manically. So Anta asks her aunt where Maury is, and then, as you say, the aunt says that Maury's basically killed himself. So Anta runs down to the cliff where she finds Maury unhurt, and then she has sex with him after getting the lads out, of course. And the scene is juxtaposed with more animal slaughter imagery. And, and it's played twice. It's played twice, this part where she yes. runs down and finds him. So, like, what's the deal? What, what is the deal with Mari? Uh, I don't know. Because uh, I assumed I, if there was a moment where I thought she was having sex with his corpse. <laughs> really? There was a moment yeah, where... because they show this. They show that slaughter imagery, and then she's, like, getting naked. And she looks worried when she sees him lying I... there. There, I, there was a moment where I thought she was masturbating. Yeah, or maybe on his dead body. I don't know why, but I mean, the aunt said he was dead. I trusted her. Is, is, am I wrong for trusting people too much? Potentially. I mean, maybe. Like, but I don't know, is this film being deliberately confusing or deliberately arty? Well, let me give you a qu- There's a quote from the Wikipedia which says, Tukibuki displays a style all its own. Its camera work and soundtrack have a frenetic rhythm uncharacteristic of most African films. 
known for their often deliberately slow-paced, linearly evolving narratives. However, it has been asserted that the jump cuts and radical spatial shifts of the film are inspired by African oral traditions. And definitely inspired by the French New Wave, I would say. Mm, say There's a lot of French New Wave in it. There are certain things that trip it over a little bit uh, in that regard. And one of them, unfortunately, French New Wave films, they're famous. I don't know. One of the things that one of the things they're famous for is uh, stupidly beautiful young people. And I'm not saying that Maury and his missus are not, but the rest of the people in the film are so obviously not actors that it sometimes is, is a bit tough for my sensibilities, let's say. Next, Maury and Anta find a crowd of people in the street around a man playing three-card Monty. Maury bets a thousand francs, which he unsurprisingly loses. Not having the money to pay up, Maury takes off running being chased Austin Powers style through the streets by the entire neighborhood. There's another sequence. There's, I, when you, I guess we can see the limitations of the film. There's a sequence where there's a, f- a fight breaks out at the, at the local water fountain thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of kids. There's a, there's a lot of kids like standing around just staring at the camera <laughs> or, or trying not to look at the camera and then just constantly turning to try to get a look at it. And it's just very clear that these are just the kids who were living in that neighborhood. Uh, that, but, scene, uh, that scene is very Benny Hill. Yeah, that's probably not the, the strongest parts of the film. But next, uh, the couple plan a heist of a big wrestling match, although it's not exactly Ocean's Eleven uh, level here. Uh, they head over to the stadium and lift a big trunk that they think is full of cash and then put it in a taxi. It's later revealed to be full of bones. It's got a skeleton in it. I mean, I don't know. And some clothing. Why was there a skeleton in the box? I don't know. He removed it from the closet. Okay, speaking of closets. Mm, well, this is where we can introduce uh, my favorite character of the film, Charlie. I think the film more or less refers to him as a big fat gay guy. <laughs> Seems to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, enthousi- he's, he's the fat guy, Fat Charlie. He's, the en- he's enthusiastically gay. He is. He's. I, I love him. I love him. But he's he also, they refer to him as fat. And yeah, fat for 1973 Senegal. I mean, he's he'd be pretty thin by modern standards, I feel. Yeah, he's a rich but he guy. He is 100% the best. He's great. I love him. Maury goes around to talk to him at his house. And while Charlie's in the shower, Maury <laughs> lifts his entire wardrobe, car and driver. All the while, Charlie's telling Maury to come in the shower with him so he can wash off all the salt water. So he can wash his back, yeah, um, mm. yeah. It's quite a it's quite a scheme that he has going there, yeah. But it's just so funny, like Charlie's wash in the shower, and Maury's robbing the entire house, <laughs> like taking. He takes like about four suitcases of clothes, and the guy's car and driver. Yeah, <laughs> one would wonder, like, how did they work out the plot for this? Because it's like th- that is a crazy way to get to France. Yeah, well, okay. The next part is, this is a question I have for you. What is the deal with the caveman-looking white guy, light-skinned guy who's up in a tree? What's that all about? You're the one who's got to be answering the questions here. I have no idea what that's about. I have no clue. Because, yeah, he does seem to be some sort of a Neanderthal in a tree. And he, yeah, and Anta's on the bike, riding the, the cow motorbike, because Maury's in the car that they stole. 
So this like caveman guy jumps down and Anta shits herself and runs off and this caveman guy steals the bike. And then the next sequences are all very dreamlike and surreal. Mori and Anta are welcomed as heroes. There's a big parade through the streets of Dakar. They go and see Anta's aunt who welcomes them and does like a kind of tribal dance yeah, when Mori gives nice her some dance. money. She definitely redeems herself. And then finally, Big Charlie calls the police and tells them that Mori and Anta stole his stuff. That was my favorite Big Charlie. Yeah, you, like, you like that phone call? I like that scene because Big Charlie even uh, drinks whiskey in a gay way. I don't know if you <laughs> noticed that. But he takes, like, he, t- uh, he takes the glass. I, did, I didn't notice it was whiskey. Uh, well, he says it's whiskey. He says, I've got this nice fancy whiskey over here. And then he pours himself mm. a little bit and he takes the glass between his two index fingers and goes... Uh, I respect that. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. how I'm going to drink from now on. Yeah, he calls the, the so the the police inspector is apparently Charlie's lover, and the it also has the same name as the director of the film, mm-hmm. which I, is bold to make. The film director, as far as I'm as far as I know, wasn't gay, but he named a gay character after himself in Senegal in 1973. And maybe I'm again, I know nothing about Senegal, but I feel like. In West Africa in 1973, that would be a bold move. But I guess making a film is probably viewed as gay <laughs> at that time. <laughs> probably doing anything was gay at that time. Mori and Anta book tickets on a boat to France. They head over to the port and go to board the ship. At this point, Mori realizes he's going to get caught, so takes off running. After sprinting through the streets, he comes across the caveman-looking guy who has crashed Mori's bike and is in bad shape and gets taken away by an ambulance. I, I, what's that? What is that? What Did you make anything of that? Well, I, I don't think that's... Is, the, is, is it me again? I don't think that's the reason um, Mori doesn't get on the boat. I think he doesn't want to leave no, no, Senegal. But, wait, wait, but I thought he sees... There's... Uh, no, it's not that he sees something. There's like a a call goes out over the Tannoy, which is a brand name, as I'm going to mention again, looking for <laughs> Mr. Diop, and then he shits his pants. Hmm, I didn't read because it that it's way. I just thought he did. He his in the, surname? In the, Inspector's I, surname? I just think... Everyone's in, called Diop in this film. He just didn't want to leave in the end. I think the guy that they're looking for is the fellow who sneaks into their car to get into the port. Because there's I a, don't think so. I a, think they're looking for Marion. There's a child looking for that man with a with a big baton. Anyway, yeah, do you remember him? There's a child with a baton looking for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, again, he's actually fifty three years old. Any, any interaction with the tribesmen? I have no idea what's happening. I have none. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It looks like something out of like a Kanye West video or something. Anyway, uh, then we've got these uh, white people on the boat. Yeah, just being big, bad, imperialist, colonial scumbags. Talking about communists and stuff. Yeah, and there's an there's a, a odd connection here. Do you know the, this connection between communism and um, the director? Oh, yeah, he got arrested in Italy. I, uh, I never wrote anything about that here. What was the story? Yeah, someone bailed him out. Like some, Bernardo... uh, he went to some anti... Yeah, he went to uh, like some anti-imperialist march or protest or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, he it got was in ar- Rome, I think, yeah. He got arrested and bailed out by uh, Sofia Loren and Bernardo Bertolucci with the money from the Italian Communist Party. Nice. 
Um, so yeah, so finally, Anta goes off to live her life in France, and Mori is condemned to continue his existence as a cowherd in Senegal. There was a there was a kind of sequel to Tuki Buki. Did you read about that? No. In 2013, Matty Diop, niece of director Jibril Diop Mambetti, made a follow-up fictionalized documentary called Mille Soleil, or A Thousand Suns. Uh, I really wanted to watch it, but it was impossible to get hold of. Apparently, in the film, Magai Niang Mori has spent his, his life living in Senegal, never having achieved anything, while Marem Niang, who plays Anta, is working as a security guard for an oil rig in Alaska. Living the Dream. Matty Diop directed Atlantique, which won the Grand Prix at Cannes in 2019, and she got her start in Claire Denis' 35 Shots of Rum. And apparently that film is on Netflix. So, And she's hailed Claire Denis as a massive influence on her filmmaking career. But yeah, it I would be interesting if to ever manage to get hold of a copy of Mille Soleil as well. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in watching more African films if I get the chance. Me too, to be honest. This reminded me of the sort of film that I'm sure Mark Cousins would fucking gush over. For, and I've, I've watched many videos of uh, Martin Scorsese gushing over it at this point. For me, the, yeah, just the certain madnesses in the plot, I was so happy to just be on a general tour around Senegal, you know? I was really enjoying that aspect mm, of it. Sure. I was even enjoying just the boldness of the statement of the... Abattoir, abattoir sequence at the start which is i can't emphasize enough is really really horrific but yeah there's like there were certain parts like the the the, the tribesman for instance is one or uh, ante's mad aunt laughing manically for or even the thing at the start with those guys in the jeep i didn't quite get what was happening and I've, yeah that was a little i mean that some of that surrealist stuff was yeah it's quite hard to figure out yeah, and like I, it, it, nowhere near as bad as this film. But we, you know that um, fucking documentary I made us watch. What was it called? Uh, My Winnipeg. There were moments in this where I felt like I was fleeting. I, w- I like it was taking me in that sort of direction, and I desperately wanted to stay with the narrative. Even when the narrative got trippy, and they were, they were kind of. It was almost like a fantasy sequence where they're rich people returning to Senegal. That I could get on board with. I thought that was cool and interesting. But then, yeah, there, there was some like, and now, listen, this was this is this guy's first film, and he just picked up a camera and decided to make a film, having seen a few. Um, so I couldn't never fault it too much. All I'm saying is that um, it fell a little bit short of very interesting for me. Like I've I have watched some arty pretentious crap and then watched it again, and I won't watch this again. But I, I mean, I would like to withdraw in, the word pretentious because yeah, I would on. not say this is pretentious. This is not a pretentious film. This is this is real and raw as it gets. I would say you liked it though. I did, and you definitely you you've gone as far as to emphasize this. You definitely liked it more than Scarecrow. Is it fair to say you did not like I, Scarecrow? Scarecrow semi redeemed itself towards the end, but overall, I did not like it. I did not care for Scarecrow. One of the main notes that I wrote early on in the film was, is there anyone less funny than Al Pacino? <laughs> that, was a, that was a question that I asked. I mean, no, I don't mean to disrespect <laughs> him. He's obviously a great actor. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. loves him. But like, could there be a less funny person than him? Yeah, when this film really goes for funny is when it fails the hardest. 
Um, but then I, I wonder if that's just because of the time period, because it reminded me of the candidate that we watched before in some ways in that something, which is, again, is like early 70s, similar thing, something that's supposed to be funny. I just think something of the comedy, something of the humor of 1971, 1972 US Hollywood does not translate to the modern day. Well, I mean, it's just I've, lost in time. I think, and I, I noted this particularly. I think this might be because there's a reason why the the the, the finest films of uh, that era are just mired in darkness. You know, it was a dark period in the world. People didn't trust their government, yeah. and uh, like I mean, like and the best films kind of reflect that until Star Wars and Jaws rescued everybody. <laughs> that, that is a ver- that is a funny note about Al Pacino. I don't think there is anybody less funny than Al Pacino. Do you, uh, do you have Have you read who the uh, with the actors that were pitched for this originally? No, go on. Jack Lemmon and Bill Cosby. In what roles? I don't know which way round. And I don't know if the, if that was like a pairing or not, but those are those were names that are are on the trivia section of IMDb. Would so Bill therefore, Cos- that's gospel. Uh, Bill, Co- Bill Cosby was probably um, supposed to play Riley, I would assume. Who was Riley? He's- the, the rapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. What it, it, what are you suggesting? I'm suggesting nothing. I'm suggesting nothing. But um, I had come across this a while ago, and my main response had been um holy shit there's a yeah yeah there's a there's a a film with uh, gene hackman and al pacino that i've never seen it, I, it's kind Which, of a- that i feel like that should be ringing some alarm bells in your head of why have i never heard of this film and at the end of it, i was kind of like yeah okay i get it yeah i get well i understand completely why it didn't hit big and i've kind of hinted at it and i'll go into it more later but i mean i firmly believe that no, no, no. Well, I'll get to talking about it and we'll get to these sort of points later, I suppose. Right. Just going to introduce the major players in it. So uh, this is 1973 road movie directed by Jerry Schatzberg, whose only real previous credit of any significance was Panic in Needle Park, a film I've never seen, but I've always intended to. Have you seen Panic in Needle Park? I think I have. That's what I said last week. I think I've seen it. I don't recall anything. I think Al Pacino is uh, a heroin addict. I have very little recollection of it. I've seen it but a million years ago, around the time I watched Serpico, although I think I've seen Serpico a few times. but This film was written by a man called Gary Michael White, who didn't do much of anything else. It seemed to get picked up, um, as was happening a lot back in the day, in the early 70s, when studios were looking to smaller-budgeted, more indie-feeling movies to try and make their money, because certain films had been huge tankers and just flopped for the studios, whereas films like Easy Rider and Bunny and Clyde were um, doing gangbusters. Um, so they started throwing money in unusual places and this happened to be one of the places it landed. Just trying to sort of harness the countercultural energy that was a uh, residual left over from the 1960s. Anyway. I can't believe this won the Grand Prix though. It shared the, the Grand Prix it can with a film called The, the Hireling. Hireling, the I Hireling, think, yes. I which feel- had maybe had like uh, Robert, Robert Shaw in it, I think. It did, yeah, yeah. I was uh, like looking into watching it because it was just t- t- Tukibuki and Scarecrow are so, so, 
so distantly related. I almost felt like it was I was at the Cannes Film Festival in 1973, having watched them. And that the, was what I was going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, <laughs> it's putting I, I, you in the time period. Yeah. Anyway, Scarecrow opens like a Laurel and Hardy movie with uh, 70s sensibilities. And I'm not unsure that that wasn't the idea in mind when Gary Michael White wrote it. But anyway, we meet Al Pacino's Francis Lyon, who's the Laurel, uh, who's an ex-sailor making his way back home, having ditched his pregnant lady to see the world and to run away from his pregnant lady, I suppose. He's carrying a lamp with him as a gift because he doesn't know if it's a lady or a boy or a lady boy, and a lamp seems like a safe bet, and he's away with the fairies a bit. Did you dislike Lion immediately? Immediately. You're, you're, <laughs> maybe you, I mean, are you just guessing that I wouldn't like this type of person, or? No, 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 I didn't like him either. Yeah, I immediately didn't like him. There are So early on, when they're waiting at the side of the road they're trying to hitchhike and you see the difference in the two characters because max played by gene hackman when a car doesn't stop for them he basically is like up yours buddy and then when the car doesn't stop for francis he shouts eat cantaloupe you belly aching rhinoceros and immediately when he said that i just audibly said oh no (laughs) oh no because I just had the fear of like, oh, this is improv. Al Pacino thinks he's funny. No, no, no. And then he started acting like a like like a like a monkey or a big ape, just like and doing. And then he does like this kind of weird improv-y thing where he's talking on the phone to someone. Yes, putting his finger in his ear. And I just, I was going, oh no, please no, please no, Al Pacino, please no, yeah, please just stop. It's not his best look. But is is he uh, he's supposed to be funny though because like that's the whole scarecrow concept is he makes people laugh and people do seem responsive to it so like he's just he's doing the <laughs> there's so many scenes where he's just fucking annoying and yeah. people are like you're so crazy you're so crazy lion I do think like <sighs> I mean how annoying Al Pacino is in this is offset effectively enough by just how good Gene Hackman is in general yeah yeah i think uh, yeah absolutely i think the character of max is is threatening and there's a uh, i don't want to get, keep jumping between scenes mm. but there's a scene where they're at they're at a bar and he gets into a scuffle with some guys and then it turns into a big celebration eventually and so they're doing a big kind of like conga line out the bar and he mm. gestures at the guys and tells them to go outside too and and then when they're all celebrating, he just walks over and sucker punches the guy in the stomach. Yeah. It's just, he's just, he is genuinely violent. Yeah. For the, uh, for the sake of just being violent. It's which is, great. well, one thing that is unusual in it is, so they're clearly going for the whole of mice and men dynamic, but both of these characters seem to be idiots. I, I, I read it as this, like, if you compare it to of, of Mice and Men, it's a completely different dynamic because with Lenny and George, one character is forced to sacrifice all the time, make sacrifices for the weaker one. But here it's far more balanced. Yeah, and yeah that's fair. And neither of them are, are likable at all, in my opinion. Yeah. Maybe so, you feel sorry for Lion a little bit. So anyway, well, we... Well, 
we've mentioned him already, Gene Hackman's Maxi, Maxi Millen, who's a bad-tempered ex-con headed to Denver and then Pittsburgh. The two of them meet cute, trying to hitchhike across the road from one another in a sequence that could truly be out of a silent film. Uh, Gene Hackman gives a very Gene Hackman performance here and is consequently like great fun. And uh, Pacino maybe affected in hindsight by his more iconic roles he took around this time gives what could effectively be described as a marmite performance and i i don't really like marmite uh, i think you've uh, is this is this the thing is this the next film that he did after the first godfather i i would i think i would say rent, I, I would say if the shoe fit because the dates would line up like that I mean, that's just mad. He and probably there. thought he was the king of the fucking universe at that point. He's so small. Oh, that's that's another thing. This is like, so uh, Gene Hackman's 6'2", and Al Pacino's 5'5", five, five or 5'6". Five, and this is one of the only films I've seen him in where his height is, like, it's not in the Hollywood days of, like, yeah, you're the star, we're going to make you look bigger than you are. Mm. And this film plays him as small, almost smaller than he is. Yeah, and, and makes fun of him for being small. So yeah, he and he's did, physically threatened because of his size. He did this. Um, it goes Panic in Needle Park, Godfather, Serpico, this Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, it was, it was a good run. Um, With uh, apart uh, from this, yeah, apart from this. So neither of us like Marmite in this case. So the two go for a drink and agree to start a business together once uh, they've seen Max's sister Cooley in Denver and Lion's kid in Detroit. Oh, is that his sister? I didn't even catch that that's his sister. Yeah. Uh, it's in this scene that the film's title is explained with Lion detailing his life's philosophy that maybe crows aren't scared of the scarecrow, but they stay away from the field because they appreciate the laughter he gives them. Uh, I think this is a f this philosophy is like just a safe recipe for a nervous breakdown, quite frankly. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was such a load of harsh shit. Like, so he's... I mean, okay, so is this a whole Wizard of Oz thing? Is that how you're supposed to read it? There's like Scarecrow, he's called Lion and he's a coward. Mm. And then Max is kind of a heartless tin man. And they're both, so one's a cowardly lion, one's the tin man. And they're both trying to transition towards being the brainless Scarecrow that's entertaining this is this is why well yeah but together. i mean the way the plot the way the plot unfolds eventually would i mean undermine that a little bit it becomes clear as the film yeah. progresses that maybe like a lot of the reason for the pairing of the two is to illustrate just how vulnerable such a philosophy leaves one in the dark world mm -hmm. of 70s cinema but honestly like for the first half of this film at least this could have been a slightly more serious snl cast movie uh, to be honest mm -hmm. You take out two super serious people, like remove your Al Pacinos and your Gene Hackmans, and do you know what? This is a clear reference point in for it. Stick in John Candy and Steve Martin, and this is uh, yeah. The, this belongs in the nineteen eighties. This is why I was saying I like this. I I feel like this is the reason maybe it disappeared is because it came a decade too early. Because films like this were yeah. being made left, right, and center in the nineteen eighties. I mean, because it's it's optimistic, you know. It is for the most part until until it gets all seventies. They get various lifts and land in another bar. The size of Max is immediately commented upon by a lady with gigantic boobies, whom he soon progresses to shagging as Lion dances around with a mannequin. Hmm. Yeah, that was yeah. another. Like, yeah, the dancing around with a mannequin. I'm just like, I'm, is that? The, yeah, that. What an annoying little twat. Yeah, that stinks of um, 
Al Pacino's super serious New York acting head saying, wouldn't it be funny if I did this? And it's like, maybe mm-hmm. that's how you make each other laugh at your just awful actor parties. Hey, look, I'm dancing with a mannequin. But um, no, no, not That's really. how I felt. I mean, that's that was my immediate reaction, like I said at the start, was just the fear of some of the improv that specifically he was going to come up with. Yeah, and I would imagine just, he did worry quite a bit of it. In yeah. the next scene, um, as Max waxes lyrical about how good it is to get laid after his stint in prison, a lion innocently but prophetically pries as to what one does in the joint to, rese- to relieve prison blue balls. Next part of Max's it's plan... It's all going to be fine is to hit up the hobo jungle, which he discovered has been replaced with some kind of factory or other. He seems fierce upset uh, to deviate from his plans a little, but Lion talks him off that ledge and reveals himself to be, I mean, in the mind of the screenwriter, some kind of like Tony Robbins, Forrest Gump figure. Yeah, to teach his friend to become a scarecrow. Yeah, exactly. He basically, he's like, you're, you're too serious, you need to start... You need to laugh, and you need to make other people laugh. Like, Lion is completely naive about what prison is like. Max has done five years at San Quentin. Like, Max is fully aware of what happens in a prison. So when they eventually go to the the work farm, Mm. it's extremely clear, because at first you're you're supposed to be on the side of uh, Lion, because Max is acting like a dick, but then, you know, it's it's quickly revealed. But anyway, that we're jumping ahead here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they uh, soon after this, they get to Coley, and um, Max kisses his sister on the mouth a bunch of times, which must have been a 70s thing. This is why I didn't think it was his sister. Yeah, yeah, that's his sister. Mm. Uh, while Max has been away, Coley has gotten into the junk business with a busty Frenchie, whose eye gets promptly poked out by Max's erection. I think it's fair to say. This is a... So I, I feel like we encountered this, yeah, when we were doing the conversation. But, I mean, <laughs> I love Gene Hackman. I love Gene Hackman. But Gene Hackman... I don't like thinking of him as a sexual being. No, Gene it Hackman... makes me very uncomfortable. ...has always looked like he's made over... He's made from leftover scrotum skin. Like, he, like he's just... A, <laughs> That's and, accurate. And, like... It, in almost any film you see him in, in the 70s, he's got like 10 years on anybody, on everybody, because he didn't get uh, success in acting until he was like 43. Yeah. I, <laughs> in the scene, he's he's he, they're eating KFC, mm. and oh. he's got yeah, and bits it, of it, chicken it, on his face, mm. and he's burping, and Frenchie's like kissing him on his ear, like... I almost, I almost had to switch off the film because I was f- like, felt is physically ill. KFC? Gene Hackman with chicken on his face. <laughs> is that KFC scene not absurdly overmiked? Like you can, I mean, maybe it's supposed to be gross, but it, fu- it is so gross. Uh, it's disgusting. Yeah. I uh, hope our podcast has a similar effect on people. Me too. Let's eat some KFC on here. I don't really eat KFC. It always disappoints. And you don't eat meat. No, sir. Anyway. And watching Gene Hackman's chicken face has sealed that for me. <laughs> oh, God, it's so gross. But yeah, he's a sex object for uh, Frenchie. Yeah. yeah, she immediately wants to shag him, which is just, that's madness to me. I just, I... But then that's also the 1970s. So. Actually, there's a scene just before this when she comes out to uh, give them beer that, for me, is the most annoying scene of Al Pacino trying to be funny. Well, fucking around with a door in yeah. the background. Yeah, it's, it's just... All this kind of wanky... It's just a, he's an annoying little... It's just... Like, I've watched both of the Godfather films and the, the first two ones in the last three weeks, and all the gravitas 
has been taken out of them by his performance in Scarecrow. Yeah, because you know that this is probably closer to who he really is. <laughs> he's not Michael Carleon. He's Francis Lionel whatever. I mean, I'll tell you what, Crow. though. If, the, if, this, if this is closer to who he actually is, then it confirms him as just a monster of an actor altogether because he's amazing as Michael Corleone. I mean, there's, there's certainly no question of his, I think he's proven himself in, in acting. As a matter of fact, I just I, don't like this character. I just, he shouldn't have been in this film. Don't, uh, don't misunderstand me. I would say that, uh, Scarecrow is, is a valuable card if you want to make the play of how good an actor Al Pacino is, because you like, I mean, just to show how awful he is in this, and I'd say you're right, I'd say this might be closer to who he actually really is because of all the seemingly improv stuff. I mean, and then you can see such transformations as Michael Corleone, Dog Day Afternoon, even Scarface, which is, I mean, a little bit over the top, but still. And this is the other end of the Pacino spectrum. Next day, Max and Lion go shopping for a birthday present uh, for Coley, but the plan uh, is for Lion to distract while Max shoplifts. And as a distraction, Lion runs around the shop like a lunatic. Oh, my God. <laughs> Even this was annoying. I actually, This made me laugh a little bit. I, I, that made me laugh a little bit, I'll, I'll say that. I, he's, I, just, I, he's trying too hard. That's how yes, I felt that's about true. him all the time. He's trying way too hard. That's true. And if that's what the character's supposed to be, then fine. But I just didn't like him. That moment made me laugh uh, a little bit, but it also reminded me of a film that I really, really dislike for reasons like this, which uh, is Zach Braff's film, um, Garden State, which I, I just... Yes. I really dislike that film. One of, one of, one of my least, uh, or one of my most hated scenes in any film is the one where Natalie Portman is, goes... That is exactly what I'm referring I, to. Some, yeah, I thought so. Sometimes I just like to do something that no one's ever done before. Uh, the next night they go out for a farewell dinner that gets really boozy and fighty. Lion is the life of the party, but Max gets into a jealous scrap with a former lover of Frenchie. Let's face it, there's got to be a few, uh, which somehow sees them both locked up for a month in a in. A, I think it's the youth hostel I stayed in when I was in the ha the Hag. To be honest, <laughs> I mean, imagine almost getting raped in a work farm. Yeah, and that's pretty disappointing. It's not fucking Quentin. I mean, this is not like the hardest time anyone's ever done. That This is legitimately, it immediately reminded me of a, a hostel I stayed in in The Hague. I said The Hague before. <laughs> but like, like just that, I was like, that, this is the, is this real? It, it must have been. There must have been a place like this. I mean, they kind of pulled it out of their arses. It's just bizarre, though. Anyway, yeah, so Max blames Lion for seeing them locked up. And so Lion ends up befriending a more powerful inmate named Riley, who sees Max get hog duty. <laughs> And then he tries to rape Lion. <laughs> Max makes up with Lion and exacts revenge on Riley, brutally beating him outside the hog pens. I really like that shot, actually, that uh, zoom out. Um, yeah, it's just um, yeah, it's done from uh, from far away. Mm. And uh, but then it also has kind of poor 1970s stunt fighting, though, where they go flying through some uh, like piled up hay bales, mm. um, which is is not great, but it is a nice brutal beatdown. Yeah. Of evil rapist Riley. Anyway, I, oh, rapist. by the way, I must ask, I must ask. Um, so, yeah, from the moment Riley appeared, did you not go, he's going to try and rape Lion? No. Oh, really? I you were surprised read by it? it as, okay. I didn't I'm naive. I haven't, I haven't done any time inside. I just thought he was a nice helping man. 
a man who's there to just to help his fellow man. I was just in the and I, not I, expect I was, sexual favors for it. I was screaming at the screen, going, "Just do not ex- do not accept anything from that man. He's going to uh, take it back in assholes." Um, he's uh, he's he's only doing eighteen months. Yeah, I know that was. Bizarre. He's like he's like do you, do you, do you know do you know how long I'm in here? My sentence. I'm in here for five hours. <laughs> yeah, so, it's like I need it. I need it, man. I gotta that was, take that it. That was. I have to say, even for the seventies, that must have been a strange scripting decision. Uh, like, I mean, may, do, do you think yeah. an, ed- an editor said to like White, uh, you know how long people do in prison typically? <laughs> <laughs> It's not even a prison. It's a fucking work farm. Yeah, and he's yeah, got yeah. alcohol. Maybe and, that's the problem. He, and he he's, got drunk and he's one ma- thing led to another. He's mates with the the guy with the governor's son. He'll yeah. be fine. Afterwards, Lion is it's not exactly Shawshank. Yeah, no, it is not. Although he could, he would easily make it into the sisters. I'd say. Uh, I think he would be on the bench. He's the sisters B team. There's no way he'd be getting picked. To the he's only he's in eighteen months. I yeah, mean, he's, he was good, but he's not as good. He's not as good as the. Uh, ginger guy from aliens he's the the best prison rapist out there oh yeah he is in aliens yeah 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 he's Was his uh, name drake or something something like that yeah what's he called uh anyway afterwards lion is uh, traumatized and somewhat lacking in his former spark though max seems profoundly affected to live more positively and less aggressively on account of seeing lion taken advantage of he tries to cheer lion up uh, scarecrowing let's call it by doing a mock striptease in some random bar uh, they end up in one positive for the film bars in this film seem fun they seem like fun bars but then also i didn't like the scene when they were in one of the bars and they start talking about their car wash plan and uh lions up on the table talking a bunch of shite wearing a what looks like some kind of like beekeepers suit on. yeah yeah i think it's a beekeeper I just, suit. i didn't like the idea of someone just it was the whole bar is going like Way, cheering at everything they say but they're just talking absolute shite have you ever been in an, yeah, it's in, just it doesn't feel realistic have you ever been in like a small town dive bar in america yeah i want to say i'm trying to think i've been in a small town I've been in plenty of dive bars in America. I don't know if any of them were in small towns. When I was like traveling around the West Coast, we sort of um, made it our business that if we, whenever we would like stop in small towns and like specifically ask taxi drivers, where's like the local towny dive bar? And they're all fucking places like that. <laughs> they're all just. Everybody looks at you like suspiciously, but eventually you'll get into the swing of things, you know, and the karaoke is on all the time. Anyway, back into it. They arrive in Detroit and Lion gets uh, scrubbed up and prays before calling his former lady to see if he can pop over. We see his child, a boy, call his mother to the phone. Who She's been remarried and seems to have herself been traumatized by um, Lion's abandoning of her. Uh, and she lies and says his child died in Utero at eight months, her falling down with no one to catch her and thus it being Lion's fault. Lion puts down the phone and announces to Max that he is overjoyed with the news that is of his son. But like, we're like, what the fuck? But then he soon has a, a fairly, I'll say, a fairly convincing breakdown uh, in front of some children and is admitted to a mental institution. This is one thing that um, I thought was interesting in the film is is that, okay, how annoying Al Pacino is in the film came to an odd sort of a crescendo in this scene where he had a breakdown because I was mm. kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. 
that like okay yeah so, yeah so yeah. maybe that almost justifies the level of annoyingness yeah yeah and it kind of made me think um is it possible that they didn't think he was being funny that he thought they thought he was being mm. insane it doesn't make it less annoying but i thought like mm-hmm. his uh, having that type of breakdown because it, it particularly when he picks up the kid and brings him into the water is a little bit chilling anyway that like i thought that was effective enough if there was just a little bit more given to the audience of characters yes kind of commenting on that going like even if it's yes. even if they're laughing while he's doing it but then afterwards going like fucking hell this lion's is complete arsehole yeah the no- the note that i made was uh pacino's bully uh sorry pacino's performance bullied um this this side of the story out of it do you know what i mean mm. like it, as in it was made so much about like he's all if, if it was a lady role and it was 10 years ago zoe deschanel would be playing this like it's just too fucking much and then all of a sudden in this scene where he has his breakdown is like it gets a little bit interesting because you're like oh yeah oh wow of course somebody like that would be absolutely demented you know um yeah because this is the, when he's doing the stuff for the kids he says to max he's like come over here we'd let's uh let's do a bit for these kids when he said do a bit i i think i was sick in my mouth a little <laughs> the idea that he's like well let's let's do bits for these kids Ugh. max promises to return and look after him after getting his money from pittsburgh actually i i would say like i i quite <clears> like <throat> the end the ending of the movie uh, after getting his money from Pittsburgh, yeah. and uh, he seems to intend on keeping that promise as he scrounges the last of his money together to get a return ticket in the film's last scene, and the film ends with uh, him having bought the return ticket. So we know he's going to come back, and him battering his shoe back together on the counter, and uh, suddenly cuts to black. Yeah, the film was largely overlooked at the time it was released, and I think you can be sure it wouldn't have been a decade later but with probably dis- different casting, for sure. The cynicism and grit of the 70s is like present in the plot, uh, particularly in the final act, but the tone is more trains, planes, and automobiles than five easy pieces, and uh, that just jars a lot, I felt. Yeah. yeah, I was not a fan particularly, as I've mentioned multiple times, but uh, Hackman was certainly very, very good. And I think his character ultimately is redeemed over the course of the film i mean he might jump to violence a little too quickly but he's proven to be right <laughs> i read his character as being right and yeah. he does soften a little but no like for for sure i mean like because if you look at what happens to al pacino's character i mean clearly the scarecrow philosophy is not a fucking great one yeah it's horseshit yeah yeah you should punch people random you should sucker punch people <laughs> outside bars and just assume everyone is a rapist if you go to prison. That's safe. I mean, Riley was definitely a rapist from from moment one. Uh, overall, probably wouldn't rank high in the weeks for me, to be honest. But there you have it. I enjoy Tuki Buki, and I've ticked another film off the list, that Scarecrow off the list, which if someone says, have you ever seen the origin story to the Batman villain Scarecrow? I can say yes. But I preferred the Killian Murphy version. What do you want to watch next week? Is it my week to toss or yours? It's my week to toss, and I have a coin right in front of me. Huzzah, motherfucker. Shall I tell you what I'm bringing to the table? <clears throat> yeah, why don't you go first? I feel like it's always me first. You go first. All right, well, uh, what I want to watch is um, Akira Kurosawa's 1963 crime police procedural film, High and Low. I saw a video of Bill Hader talking about it and i said to myself wow that sounds like it might be my bag baby 
Bill Hader. Yeah. Bill Hader's a, a strange big... person to be talking about a Japanese film, isn't he? No, it? he's a big cinephile. Mm. Yeah. You can seriously, there's some very good uh, interviews with him talking about uh, okay. fa- famous arty cinema. We were, when we previously discussed Tenet way back in episode two or something, mm-hmm. and we ranked our films, I think I put Insomnia reasonably high, and it was in my top five. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd say it was high. I'd say, Christopher Nolan films. Yeah, yeah. I'd say it might have been. It was like my number two or something. It was, it was pretty high. Yeah, I think it was your number two. Number two. Um, so I decided, yeah. <laughs> so I decided that I'd like to watch the original 1997 Insomnia, starring uh, Stellan Skarsgård, because I have never seen it. Yeah, mercifully, about ninety minutes long. Actually, I've I've noticed. As all good films should be. And how long is your film? That's about two hours twenty minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I blame it's Bill a Hader. Minute penalty. I all will right. blame Bill Hader for many things. Go on. Hit me up. So your options are 50 or uh, someone on a horse? I mean, I'm going to go with the horse always, am I? <laughs> I knew you would. It's 50. Hey, there you are now. Got a... All right, well, would you want to tell me what I might have won? Yes, I looked through uh, Kurosawa's filmography. I've seen Seven Samurai and Yojimbo, and I used to have Ran on VHS, but because it was three hours long, I never watched it. So I was going to show you, I was going to go for the shortest Kurosawa film I could find, which was good, which is Rashomon, which I've never seen. Ah, I've seen that. That's excellent. Mm, but okay. Well, but Rashomon even is. I like to. Isn't even that short, is it? It's it's not ninety minutes. No, it's <laughs> it is it is ninety minutes. Oh, is it? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was it was going to be Rashomon, but now it's not ever. I was trying to tie into Insomnia in just any way I could, um, and it was difficult to come at uh, come at it. And then I found it listed under uh, films that might have been inspired by. Uh, crime and Punishment, and I saw also on that list uh, Robert Brisson's mm. film Pickpocket, which is Andy, seventy-five minutes long. Ooh, five stars, right? Yeah, I've been wanting to watch Pickpocket for ages. So I don't know there was a, th- that is a good list as well. I mean, you've got um, well, two <laughs> two Woody Allen films on uh, on there, which make you think maybe is that guy considering is it okay even if he got away with it? All right, sounds like it's going to so be Insomnia uh, and Pickpocket. Yes, I was surprised. I, I thought you might choose the Nolan version so we could compare them, but I'll go for Pickpocket. At 75 minutes, I'm not complaining. Indeed, yeah. I have, I've seen the Nolan one a lot as well, I'll say that. Me I mean, too, me too. I've seen I'm, it multiple I have, times. Like, I may have, like, it is, it's, it's just a great film, and it's a great uh, late, it's a great late era performance from Pacino, and it's uh, Robin Williams at Robin his Williams. most chilling. Like, Robin Williams mm. gets all the chilling points for one-hour photo. I would say he is way more chilling in Insomnia. He is yeah. a scary guy in Insomnia. Uh, all right, then. I guess that's uh, that's us for this week. Tune in soon, folks. I love you. I love you, too. Bye. Bye. Bye.